Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest on the podcast is Graham Wax. And if you're not familiar with Graham, Graham is a recording engineer, mixer, and producer out of Nashville, Tennessee. He also runs a company called Music City Acoustics, which is primarily what his focus is on these days. And that's where he designs and builds acoustic panels for home studios. And in this episode, we focus entirely on home studio acoustic treatment. And this is really important because when you're listening to your music, you want to make sure that you're listening to things accurately and that you're not falling victim to reflection points in your room and, and resonant frequencies and all that kind of stuff that can really skew the way you hear your music. By having a room that is well-treated, you can hear your music accurately and confidently make decisions with your mixes so that you know what to boost, what to cut, and not be guessing whether it's the right move or not. So in this episode, we definitely get into a lot of topics about acoustic treatment as far as you know what you need to do, how to do it yourself. Uh, we talk about a wide range of options from free options to uh, options that definitely cost a lot more money, but will ultimately give you a much better treated room. So I think you're going to get so much great information from this. This is definitely a goldmine of an episode. So let's just jump right into the interview. Graham Wax, thank you so much for being on the Mastermix podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. For people who might not know your background, how you got into all of this and how you got into music and acoustic treatment, can you give us that story? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I've been in Nashville for like 10, almost 11 years now. And before that, majored in music in Colorado, was in a bunch of bands, played drums, and toured. And, and once I got kind of settled into Nashville, started primarily recording, so mixing and, and engineering records, um, and had a couple of different home studios here in town. And through building out, both of those got very into the acoustic side of things. Um, initially built just pretty straightforward acoustic panels for, for the first studio, and then the first iteration of the second studio. Um, which was a like three tracking room control room setup. So pretty solid home studio setup, uh, built those panels as well, you know, worked out of the space, um, worked on all sorts of projects from major label things to independent records with lo local people here in town and eventually started to realize sort of the shortcomings of the space on the acoustic side of things. Uh, and just got kind of down into that rabbit hole of figuring out how can I make things better and like really pinpointing like, oh, there's this one issue that's driving me nuts. How do I fix it? And then reading forms and books and trying just about everything you could think of, uh, most of which didn't work out so well, and then trying other things and seeing what did work. Uh, and that kind of led to me making panels for other people, eventually building out a website, uh, at which things kind of just started to snowball and eventually building acoustic treatment sort of took over my life and got to the point where I was like, I can't make records and do this. Uh, and so a few years back, started focusing more on this. And now we've got a team of six people and a big shop up the road from here. Uh, and we do studio design and build products, uh, ship them all over the country, do all sorts of stuff. That's amazing. I love that. So as far as learning this stuff, like you mentioned like books and forums and that kind of stuff, is that pretty much like the best way to learn this stuff? Or are there like better means of like, are there like schools for this? I guess maybe there are. You, I, so the school, you can go to school for acoustics, but it's mostly like architectural acoustics. Fair. Um, 
or like mechanical engineering with a emphasis on acoustics. Like I just actually did a talk at Tennessee Tech to with their mechanical engineer, a class in their mechanical engineering department. Um, and the professor of that class is all about like vibration dampening. And so he does a lot of acoustics works, but his work's like, how do you make the motor in your car not super loud inside the car? Gotcha. Uh, and very much, and not so much of like, how do you make this space sound good? Um, so you can go to school for it, but you know, if you can't really go to school for like home studio acoustics. You can go to school for like architectural acoustics, like churches, cathedrals, that kind of thing, but more of an emphasis on the architecture side. Um, and there are, I think, a few master's programs that more like, on the technical side of acoustics. But yeah, for the most part, I think uh, there's there are some really great books out there and there's some forms online that are kind of hit or miss. It's one of those things where I think within acoustics, so much of what's out there has been kind of perpetuated from what can companies ship. Fair. And so you end up with a lot of products that are like way too small to effectively do what they're supposed to do. And a lot of things that are called base traps or low end absorbers that like are just don't have the physical size to actually absorb any sort of low end. Um, but if you want to ship a, you know, a giant 80 pound thing, it's super expensive. And so people write about things that could kind of work and market them that way. So they have something to sell. Uh, and so th there's good and bad stuff online. I think I spent years sorting through a lot of like online forms and being like, you got to put stuff in the corners and I put stuff in every corner of this room and it still didn't fix a lot of the modal problems. Gotcha. Um, so I think there are some great books, but they're pretty technical. Like the master handbooks of acoustics is, is a great book on acoustics, but it's not going to like outline perfectly how to treat your home studio. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely um, agree with that. Like from a lot of the stuff that I have seen, it tends to focus on like bigger projects and not the small home, yeah. home studio, which um, is definitely inaccurate. Yeah, and a lot of it's just not, like, home studios aren't new by any means at this point. Um, the technology to have a little portable interface that sounds great is pretty, it's been around for a few years now, but, like, in terms of, like, people publishing books and really studying specifically how do you take the spare bedroom of your house and turn that into a studio is on the newer side. There's plenty of books on, like, how to design a concert hall. Yeah. And they're very technical, but there's just not a lot of, like, here's your home studio, here's how you make this room sound great. Yeah, I um, feel like it's kind of like that, uh, you know, like the, the studio industry for years has always taught like you got to work in a big studio and it's like that's that's what being in a studio is. Yeah. So people have always focused on that, but like they, they've ignored the home studio market, which is definitely becoming way, way, way more popular. So yeah, for sure. And I think like not so that I didn't really like it was a very long winded way of not really giving you like a concrete answer. I think like we were talking about Yesco from Acoustic Insider, like his website is a great resource for people. Um, he's got awesome videos very practical approaches to home studio acoustics. I write a lot of articles really trying to break down like exactly what our approach is and like what does work and what doesn't work. Um, so I think you're starting to see more of it. Of, like people who are really focused on that market, like people like Yesco and I who didn't necessarily intend to be working on the acoustic side of things, but like we're making records and then got really passionate about acoustics and how to make it better and then trying to help, you know, everybody else, everybody else understand what will work and what won't work. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's some pretty fundamental principles that I'm sure we'll talk about that like you just kind of carry those over and that's really like when it comes to home studios it's like you follow those things and you can very quickly make your room like as good as it possibly can be 
Absolutely. And for people who are listening to this who might not be sure of who Yesco is, Yesco was a previous guest on the podcast, so uh, I can't remember the episode number offhand, but uh, definitely go back through the uh, the list of episodes and you'll definitely see Yesco in there, and, and he's a great resource as well um, when it comes to all of this acoustic treatment stuff. Um, so I guess it's you know it's, it sounds pretty safe to say that based on everything you do, you totally believe that it's possible to make great recordings from a home studio. Oh, for sure. I think... You can make great home recordings in a like completely untreated studio, and there's plenty of records that have been done so. Um, Amazing. I think like so. It's not that like you have to acoustic treatment. I think is incredibly important, and is like really is if you're going to be working on records, probably one of the first things that you should be investing in because it will make your life easier and better. But you can do everything you want without it. It's just that it lets you focus on being creative and artistic and musical and not trying to correct for what you're hearing from your monitor. So if your brain is spending half of, you know, half of its energy trying to process what it's hearing because it knows, you know, at 130, 140 hertz, I have a big bump and then I have a big null just below that. And if you're constantly thinking about that and you're like, is this acoustic guitar boomy or is it just my room that makes me think it's boomy? Then you're not really focusing all of your energy on how do things sound and how do they feel. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So it's not that you can't get to the same point, you know, from a mix or tracking or a production. It's just that it's going to take you ten times as long, and it's going to be ten times as tiring. Um, but and at you the have end to of the day, like, your room. exactly. It. It. But and it's there's only so much you can really learn. So like, it's hard to learn a completely untreated room. You're gonna have to learn your room in any room. But it really is just a matter of like how you know, the better your room is, the better like version of yourself that you can be. Cause at the end of the day, like you're still always going to be you and you're going to make the kind of, you know, the choices that you make and you're still going to have the same taste. And that's why people will like working with you. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely about, you know, all of this stuff with, with your skills and the gear that you use and, and all that, it all comes down to working efficiently. And so yeah. if you have a room that allows you to reduce the creative decisions that you have to make or reduce just the number of decisions you have to make in general, you know, if it's like correcting for bad room acoustics and all that kind of stuff like that just makes your life easier. So like just knowing for that, sure. okay, my room is controlled and now what I'm hearing is what I'm hearing and this is accurate and it's like less decisions. And so you can actually focus on being more creative in the, in the context of your mix and just yeah, work more 100%. It's all just like about how do you make that space, you know, as like trustworthy as you can so that you can focus on being creative. Absolutely. So is there anything that people can do to set up their rooms to sound better without even having treatment then? Yeah, you can, you know, from a placement standpoint, you know, figuring out where you should be sitting so the listening position and where your monitor should be, the relationship of those two things uh, to one another and then where they are in the rooms themselves, where they are within the room will make a big difference. So... There's not like any hard and fast rules. I'd say like the 38% rule is, is pretty common and a great starting point, but it's definitely just a starting point, um, which is, if people aren't familiar with it, it means that you should be sitting, like your listening position should be 38% of the room's length away from the front wall. So whatever wall you're looking at. Um, and then from there, you want to create somewhat of an equilateral triangle with your monitors and the listening position. But that triangle should actually be like a foot behind your head which makes this all a little bit more, which ma- makes this all a little bit more complicated for a podcast. But yeah, so um, your face isn't the, the, the tip of the triangle. It's kind of Im- just inside. Exactly. That. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like the, like the back of your head is kind of like the tip or something like that. <laughs> uh, even a little, a little bit further, further behind. Yeah. 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 
that's awesome. That's de- that's definitely good to to know. Um, and real quick too, so like you take that like as a starting point, and then move around a little bit because as you move forward and backwards, like your listening position or your monitors and both the low end and how balanced it is is going to change, and you want to be in the position where things are the most balanced. Gotcha. And as far as that triangle goes. Are you trying to line up your tweeters? Or are you trying to line up your woofers? What What is the ideal reference point on your speakers? Normally, it's the tweeters. Okay. So different monitors will can potentially be designed a little bit differently. Um, and this comes into play more so vertically than it does. So like floor to ceiling height. Mm-hmm. So you want your, on most monitors, you want your tweeter to be at ear height or just above. Uh, some monitors, like three-way designs, the acoustic axis of that monitor will actually be on the mid-range driver. Uh, but the like, if you have the manual for your monitors, mm-hmm. um, it will tell you in there. So like I have ATC 25s and the axis of those is the mid-range driver. It's not the tweeter. And so gotcha. just when you're figuring out how high they should be, you want that mid-range driver like right at your height when you're sitting at the listening position. Gotcha. And does that change if you have monitors that are vertical versus horizontal? Not really. Okay. It, it, I mean, it changes, if the, the, it changes right? if the design of that speaker is different. So it's all about how the manufacturer or the speaker designer has their woofer, tweeter, and potentially mid-range driver time aligned. Because you want all of those to be arriving at the listening position at the exact same time. So vertical or horizontally oriented speakers and a lot of speakers that can go either way are still designed for the tweeter to be at ear height. Um, gotcha. But there's no like... It's all based off of how that speaker was designed. So if anybody's trying to figure it out, just like take a look at that manual and it should be one of the first things in there. Yeah, fair. Is there a certain distance that your speaker should always be from your walls? Not a certain distance. So I'd say for most home studios and like 95, maybe more than 95%, maybe more than that, I would put the speakers basically as close to the front wall as you possibly can with an acoustic panel behind it. Um, as you start to pull away from that, you're going to have cancellations off of the front wall. That will cause a lot of issues in your lows, low mids, depending on how far back you get. Um, and the further away you go from the front wall, the lower in frequency those get and the harder they are to treat. So, and then your left or right walls, generally we just don't have a lot of options there. Like in terms of how far your speakers are from the left or the right walls, you want them to be you want your listening position to be centered in your room because having a symmetrical listening point or position is going to be incredibly important to making your stereo image accurate. So whatever, you know, whatever's happening on the left side of the room, you want happening on the right side of the room. And then the distance from those walls is, I guess, normally you just wouldn't pick like, I wouldn't recommend picking the placement of your speakers based off of how far they're going to be from the left or the right wall. You kind of figure out like where your triangle is from front to back more so than left or right. And it's just kind of a priority thing of what the impact of that is. The other issue that you can run into, and this is where that front wall, like having your speakers right up against your front wall can be somewhat problematic, is it will very much so activate the the front to back mode of your room. So like whatever the natural resonance of your room is, it will push that because your drivers are in like the optimal spot, the high pressure zone of your room for that frequency. And that means they'll work more efficiently. They don't have to work as hard to put out that energy uh, and they get loaded up there. So you will get more of that. You can either use like the low shelf setting on your monitors to combat that. A lot of a lot of speakers will have something like that. Or um, 
if you have the ability to EQ your monitors out at all, it's a very, very easy EQ change. Um, and certain things are not, but just bringing down that additional amplitude there is. So that's normally not like, I would rather have to deal with that compromise than deal with those things that are canceling out because there's no way to fix the cancellations other than treatment. And normally you don't have enough room to treat them. Yeah, it's funny because I've always heard that like in smaller rooms or maybe like maybe in general, I've always heard that like having your monitors up against the wall would cause more bass response problems because then you're getting more reflection off the back wall and it's amplifying all that stuff. But I guess maybe that's where you're saying you can use that filter to. Yes, it's very like that's super common, right? You, you'll read that, like, that's in most speaker manufacturers' instructions. And it's not that that doesn't happen, it's just that it's really easy to deal with. Particularly now, as, like, if people are using an Apollo, you can EQ the output of the Apollo. And, like, everything you listen to through Spotify or whatever your streaming platform is, plus, you know, Pro Tools Logic, everything goes out of that, so you always have a consistent reference, which is super important. Um, but you can't EQ out those cancellations that you have off your front wall. And you're going to have them off your back wall either way unless you're treating it. So the only thing that it's really changing is how much you're loading up that low mode um, or the front-to-back axial mode that's in the room. And you're going to have that mode either way. So it's not like you're not alleviating anything. You're not like eliminating other any other problems by putting your speakers further out into the room. You're just sort of creating additional ones. Gotcha. Interesting. And I, and I guess that that would also be a little bit more exaggerated depending on the listening volume that you have, right? Uh, not really. So, like, okay. modes will be impactful at any volume. You may not be... We're not as sensitive to low end at lower volumes. So, if you monitor really quietly, we don't perceive it as well. And that's just loudness curves, like how we actually hear. Um, but it's not that it's not happening. Gotcha. The one thing that you can do in an untreated room, kind of going back to like, how could you hear things more accurately is the closer you get to your speakers, the better in that case, because you have more of the direct sound from the speaker and less of your reflected sound. Gotcha. Or at least, be, you know, just in being such close proximity to that. Um, so you'll get a much cleaner, cleaner, you know, reference point from your speakers that way, because the d reflected sound will be arriving considerably later than the direct sound at that point. Um, but yeah, the effects of modes and low frequency issues at any volume are going to be there. We just may not be as sensitive to it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially the idea of being closer to your monitors. I, I definitely feel like anytime I've gone into a big room that has the the mains on the walls, like I always feel like it's such a hard adjustment for me because I, I'm just so yeah. used to like working in a smaller room and having everything close to my ears. And I feel way more comfortable in that environment than like something bigger that has, you know, whatever, like top of line acoustics and top top of line speakers and whatever. Like, totally. I always feel like it's such an adjustment for me um, that I, you know, I just know my room so well that it's like I'm comfortable here. Right. Right. Yeah. But that makes a lot of sense with the way you framed it. So then when it comes to, like, I've, I always hear about, like, the Fletcher Munson curves and, you know, listening at, like, 84 dB or whatever. Um, does that, that still very much apply in home studios? Like, do, should we be, like, measuring our normal listening levels to see, like, you know, we should always be listening at a certain level? I would, I would say, yeah, if you could, this is a somewhat hard thing to do, but okay. a very good practice to have. Um, Particularly if you're mixing, it's almost impossible to do this as a tracking engineer or if you're producing because you have other people in the room and they're going to be like, turn it up. But yeah, if you're, if you're mixing and you can get in the habit of having one set level that you mix at all the time and that's your main reference, um, 
it is an incredible practice to have. It's definitely a challenge. Uh, it's not something I was ever like great at. I would have, I had basically like three positions on my monitor controller that I would always use. Um, and when you do that, you're, it just makes it easier to learn your room because mm-hmm. you're learning the room at specific you know, levels as opposed to trying to always interpret what you're hearing at these various, you know, at different levels um, or volumes. So it makes knowing what you're hearing much easier. Does it matter so much that you do it at 84 dB versus, you know, I would say 84 is pretty loud to be working all day personally. Plenty of people who yeah, do it. Every time I've tried to measure it here, I always feel like it's yeah. way too loud in my room. I normally worked, when I was still working on records, I worked pretty quietly, if I, particularly if I was mixing. Um, but whatever the, you know, it's more so just pick a, pick a level and try to stick to that as much as possible because that way you know what you're hearing at that point. Um, and you could very quickly, you know, learn that like at 65 dB, you're going to perceive less low end than you would at 85. And that's just how our ears work. Gotcha. But it's all a matter of like same way in the same way that you learn what your room is. It's all just a matter of like, what is your internal reference? Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Because, yeah, if you have that same level all the time, like, you know that like when you take it out to your car or whatever, you're missing that low end or whatever. Right. So yeah. you have to kind of you're always compensating to some degree, but you're creating that regular environment where like you just know the things you have to do to, to make it work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that. that that's, that's a really good point. And yeah, I definitely think that people should be like, I always listen at the same volume. It's basically I've marked off like where on my monitor controller my, my level goes to. And that's my starting point for everything. And that, you know, as, as, and then, you know, I might crank it up a little bit here and there just to see if I'm hearing anything when I adjust to different volumes. But for the most part, like 95% of my mix is done at one level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about monitor selection as well? Like I've heard people say that you shouldn't have certain monitors in smaller rooms because maybe they're too big and they're they're producing too too loud or too big of a sound for for a room. Do you believe in that? No. Okay. Is the is the short answer. Um <laughs> the I think the biggest issue with monitors is actually the form factor of them. So like do they physically fit in your room and give you enough space to accurately position them? And so with like bigger boxes, three-way speakers as you start to you know, if you take a home studio and you start to treat it well and you actually like have bass traps that are spaced off of the wall, the rooms very quickly become smaller. And then if you take a big speaker and you put it in there, you can very easily get to the place where like you can't necessarily put that speaker right where you would want it to have it placed optimally. Um, so that is a concern. But the speaker actually putting out too much low end is kind of a confusing thing. And I think the, the easiest way I would look at it is like, we want a balanced reference. And speakers are designed, no matter how big they are, to be relatively flat. So you can take a giant four-way speaker, and if you look at the frequency response of that speaker, it's still probably going to be like plus or minus 3 dB if it's a good speaker from 20 hertz. You know, if it's a great speaker from 20 hertz all the way to 20,000 hertz. If it's a much smaller speaker, let's say maybe you go from 40 hertz all the way to 20,000 hertz, but still in that plus or minus 3 dB range. And then at that point, the only way you're getting more low end out of the bigger speaker, other than those last 20 hertz, is if you turn it up louder, right? But at a low volume, that speaker's not putting out more low end. It just has more headroom, so you can turn it up louder, and it can produce low end more accurately and cleanly. So I think the size of the speaker needing to match the room, in in my opinion, is a much more physical 
aspect than it is like how much low end is actually put coming out of that speaker. That makes sense. Yeah. Because the low end's based off like how much low end's coming out is based off of the volume you have it at. True. Yeah, it's not like it's just like all sub at a certain volume or something exactly. like that. Exactly. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. And then and one other thing before we start talking about like actually applying treatment to walls, um, I'm curious to know, like, does it matter whether your speakers are, are positioned along the short short wall or the long wall? It definitely can and normally does. I would say like 90% of the rooms that I um, work on or design, we normally have oriented on the long wall to get that longer throw. So the speakers, you know, your speakers are, the woofers are aimed down the longest direction of that room. Yeah. Um, and that just gives them a longer throw. It also normally just works out kind of layout wise with most spaces better. Um, when you get into rooms that have pretty similar layouts and particularly home studios where like we don't get to pick where the doors and the windows are, some of those things can change. Um, and those issues can become more important than the length of the room, particularly if they're, you know, within a few feet, because you're not going to have a huge change there. And I'd rather have the layout of the room work so that one, it's a comfortable space to work in and two, you know, it is also can be treated well. Um, so there's some factors that come into play there, certainly. But yeah, more often than not, I'd say go the long way of the room. Makes sense. And then when it comes to like, for people who are ready to start applying treatment to the room, like where does someone start? Like, do you just listen to music and kind of guess what what you need to like take care of. Do you clap? Do you start measuring? Do you do math? Like what? Where does someone start to to, it, to get into this? You know, for most home studios, if you're you know not spending or investing over probably ten thousand dollars or so, you're kind of just going to have all of like the main things that you should do, right? So like treat your early reflections. And in a home studio, there's not a lot of like early and late reflections because the room's pretty small. So everything's coming in very fast and we perceive that all pretty much as one sound source, uh, which is why it's so important to treat it so you can hear more of the direct sound from your speakers. And for so, people who might not know early reflections, what do you mean by that? So early reflections are like view of your speaker setup, the reflections, the first reflections that arrive at the listening position. So you have the direct sound basically coming straight out of your speaker to the listening position. And then you're going to have some sound that goes out of your speaker hits the left or the right wall and then bounces back to the to the listening position. And the same thing can happen off the floor, off the ceiling, off of your front wall and off your back wall. Um, and so they're all just reflections off of the walls or, or floor or ceiling, the boundaries of the room that arrive back at the listening position. And the issue with that is that they're arriving at a different t point in time then. So they're delayed because they've taken a longer path to the listening position. And that's what causes you know, really major dips. So you have like speaker boundary interference was just a fancy word for reflections off of your walls, basically. Um, but that's how you can get things that look like comb filtering. If you're looking at measurements, you can get really sharp dips in your frequent frequency response at low frequencies in particular. Um, and that's all just issues with reflections in the room. So by treating it, you can start to smooth that out quite a bit and make the room feel and feel and sound a lot more balanced. Um, so from a starting point, I'd say, the main areas I would look are the side walls, your early reflections off the left and the right walls, um, the cloud. So like if particularly in home studios, I've found that putting a cloud up is incredibly important and the back wall and the front wall. So basically, you know, at this point we're like at most of the, all whole, the, walls. <laughs> whole, the whole room, but like yeah. really as much of the wall space as you can. Um, 
the front walls are going to be really important. Kind of like we were talking about earlier of getting your speakers as close to the wall as you can, but with a panel behind it um, to help mitigate those, those issues with the reflections off of that wall. The cloud is incredibly important, not just for your stereo imaging in depth, but for the low end. So most home studios have, even most commercial studios really have pretty low ceilings. Uh, so it's, and certainly in the U S the most common is eight, an eight foot ceiling. And that means that your head is right at the middle of the room from the floor to ceiling measurement. And that means that the axial mode from the floor to ceiling, the second octave of it has a massive boost right at four feet and your speakers are at four feet off the ground and your head's at four feet off the ground. And so is that boost. Uh, and that means you will have a massive peak at like 140 hertz. If you have an eight foot ceiling, if you have a nine foot ceiling, it's like 130 or a little bit lower. Um, it's a very easy thing to treat if you just put a big cloud up above you and make sure that it's deep enough to actually treat 130, 140 hertz. And then you can kind of get into all those same things. So like, how do you deal with as low of a frequency as possible in all of those places? And so the back wall in most rooms is going to be super important for low end because your speakers are pointed right at it. And so you're going to have a, those same axial modes going front to back. And axial modes are any mode that just is, it's a mode between two surfaces. So it's like the front wall to the back wall or the left wall to the right wall or the floor to the ceiling. And, and also, a mode is a resonance or like... Yeah. So it a, a room mode is, they are the frequencies at which the room will like resonate essentially. So you take... It's and it's just because the length of the room correlates to that frequency's wavelength, so it fits basically perfectly within the length or the width or the height of your room, and therefore that waveform can just go back and forth and it fits in the room perfectly, and so the room is resonating with it or increasing the amplitude of it. Gotcha. Um, and so axial modes are the ones that just involve two surfaces, and they're the most powerful. So they're the most problematic because they're the ones that cause the biggest increase in amplitude or the biggest null. Um, you have tangential and oblique modes, and those just involve more surfaces. So, can still be somewhat problematic, but have way less energy, so they're a little bit easier to deal with and to treat, and they don't cause as much, as many problems. Um, and, like, so one of the, one resource that is online, if people want to check out and see what's going on in their room, is the room mode calculator by Amrock. Uh, it's a, like, free, very easy to use website. You just type in your room dimensions. It will show you all of the modes that you have. Um, it breaks out the like Benello, which shows per like one third octave range, how many modes you have and whether or not that's a, you know, whether or not it's a, it's a good ratio essentially, um, which is very cool. So you can really see how things break out and, and use that to figure out, you know, kind of what you're saying earlier, like how can you figure out where to treat things? So, all of those surfaces to treat are super important, but if you really want to know where your biggest low frequency issues are, looking at like some at looking at something like that can be very useful. Yeah, and so then once you've used something like this tool here and you've got an idea of you know kind of the the modes and all the issues, how do you decide where to put your panels? Like I've heard of the mirror trick where people will like slide a mirror along the wall. Is that yeah. is that an accurate way to do it? It'll yeah, that will tell you where the early reflections come from. So the, the mirror trick kind of to break that down is like you sit in the listening position of your room 
and you have somebody walk down, let's say like the left side of your room, and they're holding a mirror up against the wall. And at the point in which you can see the speaker, that's going to be the first reflection. And then you just repeat that process. And that's where you're going to want to panel. And then and, you repeat. And one thing I've never actually seen anyone explain with, with this mirror trick is when someone is sliding the mirror along the walls, are you moving your position to follow the mirror? Or are you like, are, you just I like guess, pivot your head. Okay. Because so like 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 you're, you're normally seat, facing a different direction than where yeah, the mirror is. You right? stay so. seated. You can turn your head a little bit. You won't have to look that far. Um, it's a useful trick. It's not like, in most cases, going to be life-changing. It's not hard to look at the wall and figure out basically like, where's the speaker? Where do you sit? Somewhere in between those two things is going to be the point of the early reflections. Yeah. The back wall is a little bit different in that like your speakers are angled because they're towed in normally to, you know, create the triangle with your head. And so where they are, your right speaker is actually going to hit the left side of the back wall. And then the left speaker will actually hit the right side of the back wall. And where that becomes really noticeable is in cancellations off of your back wall. So like when you're, if you're looking at measurements of your room um, and you'll see like in this room that I'm in, this used to be the, the control room in my studio, there's a door on the back wall and it's on the right side of the room. So the left speaker has a pretty significant null or cancellation at 70 Hertz and the right wall doesn't have it at all or the right speaker does not have it at all because that back wall is treated with a foot and a half deep bass trap. Mm-mm. And it's just one issue with sound hitting a door and one issue with sound hitting a bass trap that works much better. Um, so it's a good trick for that because your panels, sorry, that was a very long way to say, the panels on the back wall, the most important place to treat that wall is actually where your panels are hitting it, where those where they're aimed. So like just treating the middle of the back wall isn't going to be that effective. But treating the back wall where your panels are are aimed and hitting the wall is going to be very effective. It's almost like if you were to draw just a straight line from your speaker to the back wall. That's, exactly. That's the spot that you want to hit. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, it, I, I've always heard people talk about the mirror trick, and I've certainly done it for myself. But it, And I, I did notice a, a significant difference when I applied it. And I think it's just such an easy little hack for for people to yeah. figure out where to put things. Because I, I, you always see pictures of people like just plastering their walls and stuff or like, you know, nobody knows where to put things. So it's it's, yeah. it's obviously really important to, to and know And if, if people are curious like how to apply this to their room and um, my answers are probably way too long-winded and hard to follow, we do have an article on our website that I wrote called What Acoustic Treatment Do I Need? And it breaks down exactly how I would treat uh, home studios there's two different sizes. They each go through like several different price points and then it breaks down our process too. So even if it like the price point, you know, if you can follow those and it goes from like $500 all the way up to $10,000, but it is all based around um, sort of like four principles of acoustics and then four questions about like the individual user and how are they using that space and what are they doing within it. And so it breaks each of those down to where they can answer those questions and then apply it to their space and from there really figure out with the different examples like how to treat their space, which walls to start with, um, and which panels are, you know, best case scenario as you get higher in budget, like the bigger the panels, the de- and by bigger I mean deeper, the better because they'll treat more low end. Um, and so that's a really cool resource because it just like breaks down ex- basically exactly what I would design for somebody. Amazing. Now we've, we've talked about panels a little bit, but 
you know, what what panel should be should people be looking for? Like, I always see people talk about like there's a lot of mixed information about like studio foam works or egg crates, and then you know yeah. there's obviously like stuff that looks significantly nicer and better. What is the best place that people should be looking for? Like, what what are the right types of panels to get? Totally, uh, I wouldn't get egg crates. <laughs> and funny you brought it up because I just had this conversation. Um, we got one of the guys who who works with us. Um, he's finishing up college this year. And he's, he has a, he had a professor and he's been like doing much of research online, I guess. And he's, he asked me about egg crates and he's like, somebody told me that they work really well. And I've seen it online a few times. Um, and if you just look at sort of like the physics behind these things, like for the most part, mass and depth are the two main fact, well, and airflow resistivity. So how hard is it for air to travel through a certain type of material? Those are the three things that determine how well something, or at least any porous absorber, so like a normal f- panel, studio foam, potentially egg crates would work. Uh, I actually found the NRC ratings for egg crates, and they don't do anything. So don't put <laughs> egg crates in your studio. And, <laughs> and NRC ratings are... Biohazard too, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a noise reduction coefficient, so it's just like how well does something absorb sound. Um, they don't work. Not surprising, but very definitive. Um there's a chart on it, I think, in the Master Handbook of Acoustics, if anybody's curious. Um, but yeah, so different products. So kind of what I was saying, porous absorbers are, or velocity absorbers are anything that is trying to slow down or make it harder for those air particles to move through it. So that's like your normal acoustic panel. If you're looking at like foam t- type products, that's all how they, they all work that way. Um, how effective they are primarily comes down to how deep they are. Because the deeper the panel is, the more effective it will be at lower frequencies. The other main factor that will come into play there is where you put them in your room. Uh, and the reason you pro- you know, a lot of people have probably heard that you should space them off the wall or have an air gap is that air particles within your room move very slowly right up against the boundaries. Um, and that's why if you're walking around a room and you, you, know, you start to hear more low end right when you get like up against the wall or to the back wall is because pressure is increasing there. You have increased sound pressure, but decreased velocity. And it's just a matter of like, if you think about like driving a car into a wall or running into a wall, that car has a, you know, that car could be going 70 miles an hour right up until the point where it hits the wall. And then it's very quickly going zero miles an hour and it's crumpled up on top of itself. So all of a sudden you have this huge increase in pressure, but a complete loss of speed. Uh, And sound works the exact same way. So if you put a panel that is trying to work off of how quickly those particles are moving up against each other, and you put it in the spot where they're not moving, it can't do anything. If you push it off the wall with that air gap to where those air particles are moving, then it can be a very effective absorber. Um, And so you can really effectively absorb, you know, quite a bit of low end all the way down to 40, 50 hertz with a six inch deep panel if it's got six inches of air behind it. Um, foam products are a little bit lighter. They generally don't work as well. It's in large part because of how they're made because of the shape of them. So most foam panels have half of the panel cut out to make the wedges. True. So you're like, you have it's that egg part of design. that panel that's two inches deep, but it's also the tip of the triangle. And then you have a big chunk of that panel that's a quarter of an inch deep and can't do anything. Um, 
So if you made those deep enough, they could potentially do something. There's also a lot of cor- like triangular corner products that are made. Uh, there's a couple of issues there. One, triangle, like tri-corner products um, go all the way into the corner. So you have that issue again of not having any air particle movement. There's no velocity there. Um, so they'll be helpful, but not certainly not the most effective way to treat a corner. Um, and if you have them, you know, the, a lot of those foam ones are just way too small. So if they have like, they'll only be 12 inches deep. So they're like 17 inches across and 12 inches deep on each side. And so they're barely coming out of the corner and they're just, way, it's just way too small to absorb a lot of low end. Um, you know, if you want, if you are really tight on space, so like if you're making a vocal booth or something in an issue, you know, where you don't have a lot of like hundred Hertz and lower and that kind of thing to consider a tri-corner trap can work really well uh, because it doesn't take up a lot of space in the room and it will effectively absorb down to hundred Hertz or so. It just isn't very effective below that because of its placement. Um, you're much better off just taking a regular acoustic panel that's, you know, six inches deep. So like a bass trap panel, that kind of thing and straddling the corner with it because it sticks out further in the room. And so at the center of that panel, you've got like a 12 inch deep air gap. And now all of a sudden you have a panel that's very capable of absorbing all the way down to 40 Hertz. Gotcha. Now, do you always recommend having that air gap or does that depend on the room modes that you have and how much low end buildup you've got in your room? Cause, cause if, if it is off the wall, it sounds like you're saying it, it will reduce the low end, but how much low end are we actually always trying to reduce? Like as much as you can. Okay. Every room has, so particularly like home studios, any small room has way really more than you can absorb. We don't have enough space to like, you can't, one, you can't overdo it. So you're not like, you're trying to even things out. So that doesn't mean like you can, in the way that you can like over treat your high and mid frequencies. So you can have a room that sounds too dead. Um, you really can't do that with low end. And maybe in a large enough room you can, but the issue that you have with treating, you know, absorbing too much high and low frequencies is much more of a balancing issue. And this you will see in big rooms. So if you take a, a big auditorium, auditorium or a venue or a church and they have, you know, 30 foot tall drywall walls and ceilings. So there's drywall everywhere. Drywall is a very effective low frequency absorber at certain frequencies because uh, it will act like a membrane. So you can have these huge rooms that have like no 100, no like they'll just com- be completely missing like 100 hertz or 125 hertz and then really long uh, reverb times in the high and mid frequencies. And so they're imbalanced in a very different way from like what we normally see in small spaces. Uh, in small spaces, w- you know, one, because of the limitation of the room to begin with, but two, because you still have to be able to work in it, like you're never going to overtreat the low end. You're just going to make it sound more and more balanced and then get it as good as you possibly can. Um, there's a lot of, you look at like older studios when they were still building out big commercial facilities, they'd have like six inches, at least like six, sorry, not six inches, six feet of base trapping all the way around the room and on the ceiling. So you, you would never see it because it's all like fabric lined walls. Yeah, they just um, look like walls. But yeah, so like in a home studio, you're not going to overdo it. It's just going to get better and better. Yeah, and if you try to do those really deep walls, you're going to have no space in your room. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'd end up with like a, a two foot by four foot room and, and then you can kind but of- perfect acoustic treatments. <laughs> crawl, crawl in there to work in it. 
Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's funny because like, you know, I'm looking at your room right now and you said that you had a foot and a half of bass trap behind those walls. You would never know. You know, no, because like I like frame this room we framed out. So this like this whole room I did as kind of a research project because we started this pretty much after I had stopped working on records. Um, but this room and then what used to be like the piano and keys room, uh, we treated and did a bunch of research in, in two different ways. So this room was framed out. So we could put in different depths of insulation and, and absorption products and try out, you know, what happens if you put like in these front corners, they're three feet deep. So at the deepest part of them. And so it was like, what happens if you put three feet of rock wall in there? Um, or what happens if you put a couple, a foot of rock wall with fluffy insulation behind it or only fluffy insulation? Uh, so this room was kind of an experiment and research project into one, what effect did the air gaps have? Cause we could push stuff all the way up against the wall or we could pull it out. Um, we could try different combinations of materials, like I mentioned. And then I really wanted to see like, how far could you take kind of a home studio in within a, at least like reasonable setup without you know, tearing the walls out and building, building everything from scratch. And then the other room we did with all prefabricated panels. So that one wasn't so much so of like, how do you test different products and materials, but more so of like, what can you accomplish if everything is a prefabricated, like four by two foot panel placed in the most optimal way possible. Um, ironically, I think the other room, which is smaller and wasn't, you know, f completely framed out, sounded better, which I was not expecting. <laughs> but yeah, every room's going to sound different. That's kind of yeah. the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. Now speaking speaking of uh, rooms, you know, does it matter the shape of your room? Like, is it better to have a rectangular room, a square room, any of that? It's definitely not great to have a square room, just because the if you have a room that's ten by ten feet, you're going to have those modes from your like front to back and left to right um, modes will compound. You always want to avoid having modes like stacked on top of each other. So if somebody's, you know, if, if you have, if anybody's listening and has like a room that has uh, whatever the dimensions are, if they just like type it into that remote calculator, AMROC, it will show you the distribution of the modes. It just shows up as like these straight lines and you want those lines to be as evenly spaced as possible. So anytime you have two lines that are like right next to each other, it's just a graph. So like of the frequency spectrum. So you'd like to avoid having one mode at like 95 hertz and one at 94 hertz because they'll start to activate each other. And so the room will start to resonate and then it you know, just lasts longer and makes things more inconsistent. So if you could have one at 75, 85, 95, 105, that's going to be much better than having 95, 94, 92, 90, gotcha. that kind of thing. And so when you have a different length and width, you get a better distribution of your modes taking that a little bit further. So like rectangular, definitely better than square. Beyond that, it's not so much necessarily like a good or a bad thing. It's a much harder to predict thing. So like rectangular rooms, there's a lot of really good, easy math out there. There's a lot of calculators for like room modes, that kind of thing that can be very useful resources. As soon as you start introducing uh, different shapes, pitched ceilings, um, you know, an L-shaped room, anything like that, it's much harder to do the math to calculate what's going on in those spaces. So then you just have to listen more, which is not a bad thing. I mean, ultimately it's like you can listen more, you can take measurements if you're comfortable, you know, working with room EQ wizard or anything like that. So you can see what's going on 
and then adjust from there. Mm -hmm. It seems like when you look at a lot of bigger studios, it always kind of has like almost like a like a hexagon type of shape. But yeah. I, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the actual treatment positioning. Like the room itself is probably it's more a lot of treatment positioning and a lot of high and mid frequency issues. It's not I think it's pretty commonly thought of to be a low frequency factor and and to truly like create a better low frequency situation uh, with angling your walls, you have to have a massive angle or a massive length of wall. Um, so for the most part, what it does is it changes what you need to do on a high and mid frequency level, that kind of thing, as opposed to like how well does the low end sound or can you eliminate room modes and, and you can't, you still have them. You just won't be able to do the math to figure out what they are. They can potentially have a little bit less energy, which is certainly helpful, but for the most part, it just means like your your high mid frequencies or your highs and your mid frequencies are going to be reflecting in a different way. Yeah. Which is so, a so, good thing. So yeah. it's not like it's not at all a bad thing, but most, you know, if I'm designing a room from the ground up, would I do it? Maybe. If I'm working on a home studio, then it's like, okay, great. What are the walls looking like? And how do we make it as great as it can be? Yeah. But in like a home studio space where it's maybe a smaller room, like you don't making that like a hexagonal shape kind of with the angled walls, like that's not really going to help you too much. It's probably going to work no. against you in a small like, room. Yeah, it's definitely not worth it to be like to build out a new wall, display yeah. it a little bit. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. We get some guys that listen to this who will probably be like building their studio and seeing like all these other big studios out there and thinking like, oh, I should just angle my walls like this. And then, you know, but yeah, it, it's not for sure. That it's and uh. It's not something I would say go out of your way to do. If it's an option within like the building phase, it's a decent thing to consider. Not necessarily the best option. But only if you have room. the size for it. Yeah. Um, but no, if you're working within an existing room, like in no way feel should you feel like one, you need to, and two, it will be that helpful. Gotcha. Gotcha. So then when it comes to the different types of panels that you can get, you know, I always see things about absorption or diffusion or base traps. Like those are the common products out there. When do you need absorption versus base traps versus diffusion? Yeah. So I think base traps as a whole is somewhat of a confusing term because it's just very, there's no like set. This is a base trap, right? It's more so of like, here is a product that is at least hopefully and not always uh, capable of absorbing low-end frequencies or low-end energy. It doesn't necessarily mean it's drastically different from a, you know, a panel that's like designed to absorb high frequencies or mid-frequencies. That kind of goes back to what we were talking about of like depth is the main thing that determines how low in frequency will a panel work. So the deeper the panel, the lower the frequencies it will be capable of absorbing. Um, so like we make panels that are one and have from one, two, four, and six inches uh, mineral wool in them. And those are kind of the standard things. Then we also do like much deeper custom built out things as well. But those are the primary things that like prefabricated panels that we have. The, the six inch deep one, like our base trap panel is a very effective low frequency absorber, particularly when paired with that airspace like we were talking about. So that is the panel that in most places, like if you have the room and the space for it, I would put in a home studio. Obviously, that can start to take up a lot of space. So then we'll kind of work in combinations of like base trap panels and broadband panels so that you can still have a very comfortable space with a great vibe and still absorb, you know, the low end energy that you need to so your room doesn't sound muddy and boxy and 
have a lack of balance. But for the most part, in smaller rooms, the deeper the panels, the better. I would almost never tell somebody to put a high mid panel in a like control room. Tracking rooms, there's there's applications and settings where that makes more sense. But like if you're mixing or producing or mastering in a room, you want panels that are capable of absorbing, you know, as low as possible. And you want that everywhere. And when you talk about the depth, you're talking about the actual depth of the material inside of the panel. Because yes. a lot of these panels do have some air gap stuff built into them as well, right? A little bit. Yeah. There aren't any panels where, so like ideal air gap for most panels you want the the thickness or the depth of the insulation material to match the air gap. Gotcha. And so I don't think there's anything out there where there's like a six inch, eight inch deep panel with a six or an eight inch air gap. Um, and I don't I don't think there should be because it's like then you have people paying for a lot of materials to make an air gap and a lot of cost to ship that, and it's just Fair. space where so you can install it, you know, with an air gap. Um, so the panel can actually be, so the panel in this case would actually be like, th- with the air gap, you're talking about, like, usually that's built into the, uh, usually, like I said, it's kind of like, kind of built somewhat to, in the panel, or just like hanging off the wall a little bit. But yeah. as far as like, that depth, like you're, you're saying, like, extend that panel out as far as possible from the wall, kind of. Yeah, I would say match it to the depth of the panel itself. Gotcha. So you have a six inch deep panel, match the air depth or the, the air gap to that, so then mount it six inches off the wall. And then total depth is a foot. If it's a four-inch deep panel, uh, may, you know, m- mount it four inches off the wall, so you have an eight-inch depth then. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will prevent it. If you, if you go too far, it will start to decrease its efficiency and its capability of absorbing frequencies higher up, um, just as it relates to their waveform and where they have peaks and nulls in their velocity. The one exception to that is corners. So if you're, if, if you're treating your corners, the air gap that you have can be much larger. And in that case, it's a, I would, it can be a good thing because you're taking advantage of how low in frequency you can start to absorb. And at that point, you're really targeting low end and you're not treating that corner so much for the mid and high functionality of that panel. Um, and so at that point you're like, how do I absorb 40, you know, 30, 50, 60 Hertz? Those, those really low frequencies, taking a four foot panel or four foot panels and putting them in your corners. If you have the space to where they're four feet wide and like two feet tall and you stack them up. Now you've got a two, two to like three foot gap, something in there from the peak of that or the center of that corner to the front of that panel. So you have a panel that's really far removed from from mm-hmm. the walls and the boundaries in your room. So you have a panel that's very capable of absorbing really low frequencies. Uh, and that's what you're targeting right there. So in that setting, it's a great option. But for panels on the front, you know, for panels on the side walls, the front walls, I probably wouldn't do the air gap because you want your speakers as close to the wall as possible. Mm-hmm. So normally we skip it there, but back wall, side walls, definitely on the ceiling. Those are the regions where you, or the areas where you want the air gaps. That's a good. That's an interesting point that you brought up about having the uh, the the wall with the speakers not having that gap on there. Because yeah, I think people would just naturally assume you have the gap everywhere, right? Right. Yeah, there I really want the there are, in most cases I want the speaker as close to that wall as possible. Gotcha. And do you is it kind of advised to always treat your corners? Do you, is there a situation where you might if not you want can? To? Okay. There's not a situation where you don't want to. It's not. Uh, the thing that I would do first. 
So like when we were talking about like where to treat your, when we were talking about like treating this, the early reflections in your side walls and the ceiling and the front walls and the back wall, uh, I didn't include the corners in there because I wouldn't start with them gotcha. in almost any space. And that's because kind of what we've been talking about, like axial modes, these modes that are, f- you know, between two walls. Yes, all modes have more terminate in the corners and have more energy there. And so it has become very common practice and very uh, commonly talked about on the internet to treat your corners. And it's the place where, you know, everybody's like, it's the spot that you have to treat and put tri-corner traps in there, right? And like fill fill all those spaces and your your low end will be even. And, and all of that energy from your axial modes is centered between these two walls or the floor to the ceiling. So like the cloud, which will, you know, essentially eliminate your entire boominess at, at like 140 hertz, like we were talking about before, if you've got an eight foot ceiling, uh, if you treat your corners all the, like all floor to ceiling, all soffit corners, so like your wall ceiling corners, you're still going to have that because that energy is just traveling between the floor and the ceiling and there's nothing there to break it up and your corners aren't affecting that. Um, so I don't typically start with them. If it's a room where somebody's got the budget or they're doing it in stages, um, it's definitely a, a latter stage for me. Where it is super helpful is the decay time of the room. So when you're trying to get the low frequency decay time lower, which is important, it's just a little bit further down the list of things that I would say you should address first. Um, Yeah. So then where does diffusion come into play? uh, In small studios? Yeah. Hopefully not at all. Okay. (laughs) Not at all. So I say that somewhat jokingly, but somewhat truthfully as well. So like not, I say not at all as in uh, scattering, which isn't like if you like technically diffusion, um, just because there's like a set of criteria that something has to meet to be a true diffuser. But so scattering, so like wood slats or something on top of panels is incredibly effective and and really needed in a lot of spaces. Um, I say diffusion shouldn't come into play because most smaller rooms and home studios don't have the space for it. So for a diffuser to work really well, you need to be like at least six feet away from it. So that it, by the time that those reflections arrive to you at the listening position, there's actually the diffused sound field. Otherwise, you're not really hearing the effect of it. So in a lot of rooms, people aren't that far away from their back wall, which is where you'd most commonly see a diffuser, like in a control room setting. Um, and in most spaces, they're definitely not that far away from their left or right walls. The other issue, and probably more importantly, is that diffusers, unless they are very deep, do not absorb low, or sorry, do not diffuse low frequencies. And as we've been talking about, like low frequencies cause all sorts of problems in in studios. Um, And so we really need that space, you know, particularly like on the back wall to be effectively absorbing low end and addressing those modes, but, you know, also just low end reflections off of that back wall. So you don't have the speaker boundary interference reflections that cause those big dips. and if you start putting diffusion on that back wall, you're now only really treating frequencies that are like 800 hertz or so and higher. Uh, you can make a diffuser work lower, but most products available aren't deep enough to do so. So it's just sort of a matter of like what's most important and how much, what do you have space for? And most rooms don't have truly enough space for the diffusers and they certainly don't have enough space for base traps on that back wall with the diffuser on top of it. <laughs> and that would be effective. And that's how like big commercial studios are designed. So if you see diffusers on the back wall, 
there's a ton of bass trapping behind them. So it's not like diffusion's the only thing there. It's just the thing that you can see. Interesting. Um, and so scattering, so like we have a, a product called a scatter face and it actually is a separate product but can go on top of any of the panels. And it's just designed to scatter uh, high and mid frequencies so you can put it on top of a bass trap panel or on top of a broadband panel. And instead of that panel absorbing all of the, the energy that uh, hits it at those frequencies, it will scatter it so it'll break them up. It reduces any specular reflections, which are just reflections that travel like in a ray-like manner. Uh, and those are the ones that cause a lot of problems. So that's really kind of the best option in a smaller space. So you have absorption and scattering combined. So what really is the advantage of diffusion then? Because if it's scattering these frequencies and we're talking about reflection points and all this stuff, like why would we want to reflect these things? Because it retains energy. And there's oftentimes where that can be a good thing. So like, let's take, you know, for reference in a control room, in a small like home studio or even a small commercial studio, you want a decay time for that room around 200 milliseconds. Your live room, you might want closer to like 750 milliseconds, depending on the size of it. If it's a little bit smaller, 500 milliseconds, but like something much higher or listening rooms where those rooms are more about enjoyment and less so about accuracy. So they want to retain more of the reflections in the life and things. Um, in those settings, it's better to diffuse because you can keep that space live without it having a bunch of flutter echo, without it being too focused at certain frequencies and things start to sound really harsh. Um, so in that setting, it's great. The And the, the reason that like scatter faces or any type of product that can work in conjunction with absorption and go on top of it is important in control rooms is that rooms that are too dry sounding are hard to work in because your ear needs reflections. So you do want something reflecting. You just don't want it to prevent you from doing other things that will allow you to treat the low end effectively. Um, so if you spend all day in a room that just has absorption everywhere, you're going to be, your ears are going to be super fatigued at the end of the day because your brain's constantly trying to figure out where it is. It's why people can't spend more than like 20 minutes in an anechoic chamber. There's, just no, thinking refle about that. there's <laughs> no reflections in there and it like will drive your brain nuts. It's like it has no spatial awareness at that point. And like we like to know where we are and we use reflections off of surfaces to figure that out. Um, gotcha. So you need some kind of reflection, but yeah, diffusion is very effective in like live rooms in in concert halls, it's used extensively in spaces where like you're trying to control reflections, but not absorb the energy. But I mean, it sounds like based off everything you said, I've always heard of the concept of having like a live end and a dead end in a room and, yeah. you know, having like kind of the reflective side at the back that really only applies to the bigger spaces. And like you said, if you, if, if you don't have six feet with, with, from your ears to where a diffuser would be, then it's kind of no point, right? Exactly. Gotcha. And those, those designs, if they were done well, still had bass trapping behind the live end. Fair. <laughs> it's like, it, yeah. And so like that, that concept is, I think a little bit misleading and like trying to pare it down to a like home studio approach at least. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so then as far as paneling goes, obviously there's tons of options out there uh, that are available. You know, any music store would typically has a bunch of stuff and, and most of the time they have like the crappy foam stuff, but uh, you know, what, what options should people be looking for? And is the DIY route a good option to go? Yeah. So if you have like the skill set and the time to make your own panels, uh, it's very cost effective. 
I know because that's how I got into this whole thing by accident. I was looking at products and and this was a almost 10, well, it's like 10 years ago. So it was a, there's definitely more options now. It's one of the reasons we are a company at all. Um, there weren't a lot of affordable options at the time of products that like both worked well and looked good and didn't cost a fortune. But if you can make them, you'll save a ton of money. Uh, we've got a video, like a YouTube video that we did with Adam Audio that pretty much shows exactly how we make panels. So if people are interested, they can definitely check that out. And it's a great option to go because, you know, ultimately the more the more you can treat your room, the better it's going to sound. And the more you can focus on music and being creative like we were talking about earlier. So that's a that's an awesome option to go if you've got the skill set. Um, if you don't, there are a lot of really great products out there. Um, I think the stuff we make is obviously great. It's what I ended up using in my studios and is stuff that we've kind of developed. And, you know, at this stage, now that I've been doing it for a while, uh, it's kind of everything, sort of the culmination of all the things that I learned through my studios and through working on hundreds of different spaces. And then, um, there's several other companies out there as well. Like GIK makes great products. Um, they do take a really long time to get. They make solid stuff. Yesco from Acoustics Insider also has a course like on how to make really, really effective uh, bass traps. So there's there's definitely good products out there and good resources now. Mm-hmm. I would say, for the most part, stay away from the foam stuff. And my first studio was all foam stuff that I had in there. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing at the time. Didn't sound very good, but uh, it, you know you can go get it at the store, and it was the thing that I thought I should have in there. Um, I would definitely stay away from that, and I would say make whatever you do put in your room, whether or not you buy it or you build it, make it as deep as you can. Yeah, and what sort of material would someone need to to build their own stuff? Um, for mo- for the most part, you just need like we our panels are built with a wood frame, and then. Um, we use mineral wool in them, which is pretty readily available. You can get rock wool. You can get it from Owens Corning. You can get 703, which is also very common. Um, those all are porous absorber type products, so velocity absorbers. You can use, I wouldn't use like in a panel um, fluffy insulation, so like the normal pink stuff or white stuff now. It just, in that uh, depth, doesn't work nearly as well when you get to much greater depths of it or combinations of things that can be very effective. So if somebody's trying to build their own like two foot deep base trap using combinations of fluffy and mineral wool or 703s, a very good way to go. But for, for just your panels, I'd stick to like 703 or mineral wool. There's also some like recycled denim products out there now, which are pretty cool, a little harder to get and much more expensive, but a, a cool way to a cool way to go if you can. Cool. And then, yeah, the, the fabric on the outside of it is usually just something... Like like speaker, I've seen people use speaker cloth. Is that a good option? Yeah, I think speaker cloth. I've never used speaker cloth for it. I think it's probably a little on the light side, or at least what I think of as speaker cloth. Um, but when I start, I mean, when I started making panels, I just went to the fabric store and bought fabric. Uh, but the but the type of fabric you get is kind of important, though, right? Because it can it is. You don't want it reflection. to be too. You just don't want it to be too thick, and you don't want. And I wouldn't use like burlap because it's really loose. So like the weave of those of the yarn in burlap is very open and you obviously want something that's going to like contain the panel so they're not super dusty and letting out any particles. Um, so yeah, like we use Guilford of Maine fabric in all of our products. You can buy that directly from them. It's awesome fabric. The main thing, and it's all acoustically rated so you can see exactly how transparent it is. 
you don't want to use something that's like really thick because it will be reflective. You also, you know, going to the, the fabric store will work and get you by certainly, but it won't last that long. So like over time, the fabric will kind of start to get a little bit wavy and the color will change if it's in the sun at all. Um, so I would, you know, if you can, if you're going to make them, it's worth it, I think, to spend a little bit extra money and get a nicer fabric, but you can use most things as long as they're not too heavy. It's like you don't want a super dense fabric. Yeah. And when you're putting the mineral wool or whatever it is that you're putting inside the panels, are you wrapping that at all? Like, is there any health health concerns at all? With, Definitely. With like when you're handling it, if you're cutting it, you know, you're disturbing it and knocking those particles up, like wear a mask. Uh, all the packaging should say that. Definitely follow those guidelines. Um, once it's in a panel, it's pretty, you know, and it's stable and you're not agitating it, there's no issues there. They can be wrapped in pla- like a really, really thin layer of plastic. So like painter's plastic that's like 0.3 millimeters won't have any uh, significant effect on how effective they are. Um, so that can be a good way to go if somebody's concerned about it. But other once you're done working with them, there's really no, no issue there. That's good to know, for sure. And last question I had for you, uh, just about all this acoustic stuff, is what are your thoughts on using programs like Sonarworks or something like that, which are supposed to be room correction programs that pre-EQ your stuff? Is, is there a benefit to that? Is it actually good? Yeah, for sure. I think um, Sonarworks is a really cool program. I would, I wish personally that like you had more control over it. I understand why. I understand why we don't, but. Um, it would be awesome to, you know, be able to to have a little bit more control over what it's doing. Anything that you can do to make that room more accurate is going to be helpful. So yes, the short answer, is, which I'm not very good at, clearly is is yes, it is a good thing to use. Um, I wouldn't recommend boosting anything with it. So there's a setting within Sonarworks where you can say like max boost. And I think there's like 12 dB, 6 dB, or you can set it to 0 dB to where it's not actually boosting anything. I would definitely do that. And then the only correction it's going to make is cuts. And the main reason for that is anytime you're boosting something into your speakers, you're losing a ton of headroom. So you can no longer turn your speakers up as loud before they just start to distort. And within that, most things that you would try to be boosting are going to be cancellations from... Uh, reflections off of a wall and you can't eq that because the more you eq into it the cancellation there's just then there's more energy hitting the wall and there's more energy coming back and the cancellation is still the same so you're not gaining anything by boosting those things you're just losing headroom but it's a great tool and it's very easy to use it's relatively affordable and it will make your room a little bit flatter it doesn't have it's not like a alternative to treating a space because it doesn't have a really significant effect on the time domain of things. So like, do you have an even decay from your high frequencies or an even decay time from your high frequencies to your low frequencies? It is a frequency response correction. It is not a time response correction by any means. Um, And so that's going to be all, that will all come down to like how well is the room treated and and that kind of thing. I'm glad you said that, said that that way because yeah, I do think it's, you know, often marketed as this way of getting, you know, accurate listening and, and there's more to it than just the, the EQ part of it. Yeah. I would say the, there, there, the other side of this now is it's not totally there yet, but a lot of speaker manufacturers are coming out with more and more of their own DSP and it isn't as necessarily, a, it's not as intuitive as Sonarworks. Like Sonarworks is nice. It's like, here's the microphone, here's the software. They tell you where to put it. 
it makes a bunch of weird sounds and it's like, boom, here you go. Um, DSP within your speakers isn't nearly at that level of like usability and functionality, but it does let you EQ certain things. So if you have like a big boost, like we were talking about earlier with like your front to back room mode, cause your speakers are all the way up against the wall, you can super easily EQ that out, smooth those things and then leave everything else kind of be. And as soon as you like, you'll find if you're EQing rooms, like you don't really want to do too much. But if you hit those big few areas where things are just feel like they're a little bit out of balance, all of a sudden the room will sound incredible. Um, so I'm definitely excited to see that come about more and more so like on the speaker side of things for a couple of reasons. One, just how much control do we actually have over it? You know, the, the lack of control in SonarWorks is fine, but not awesome because I don't really want to be EQing things like above a thousand hertz. Those are things that like are pretty easy to treat and are much better off just being treated because anytime you EQ something, there's other effects from that, from the EQ itself uh, and phase shifts and that kind of thing. So EQing lower frequencies and cutting out issues there is great. Higher up, definitely a lot less helpful and necessary. And then this was something that maybe most, I don't know if this is a common issue for most people. It drove me nuts that I couldn't listen to like a record player and also have that be corrected. So mm. I, like, if I'm going to correct my speakers, I want everything I hear out of them, regardless of like whether or not it's coming up on my computer and Pro Tools or Spotify or on YouTube, like whatever it is, I want everything to be the same so that I'm never having to like compensate for it. And if you can do that at the speakers, it doesn't matter if you like plug a phone straight into them or your computer or a record player, it'll always be the same reference. I'm hopeful that like as, as things kind of continue to progress, there'll be more and more of that DSP uh, functionality within speakers themselves because that's the really the best place for it. Yeah, and it's also the best way to learn your room. Yeah, you know, but like you have to listen to music out on your monitors to to understand what music should sound like in your room. You know, when you're listening to mastered material, it's giving you an idea of like translatable music. So exactly, you, you want your music to sound like that. But if you don't have correction on one thing, but you have it on another, then yeah, you're kind of like guessing. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. Well, Graham, thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. I love that we covered, you know, pretty much everything from, you know, what do you do if you have, if you don't have the budget to do anything versus, or to pay for anything versus, you know, doing it your own way or buying commercial stuff. I think we really covered a lot of the bases. And, you know, I love that we focus so much on home studios because everyone who's listening to this is, is working out of a home studio for the most part. Yeah. And anyone who isn't working out of a home studio is probably working in a place that was already designed so they don't have to worry about so, it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think like, and I live in, in, in Nashville where there's a million studios, but it's like, we just did in the last week, like we worked on two different, like ho technically home studios, but they are houses that are like going to be commercial studios. So, like, very much so a home studio, same size, like, control room is a normal living room. It normally is a living room, but that's, like, a completely functional commercial studio. Uh, and it's becoming more and more common now, which is very cool. Yeah, it's awesome. For people who might want to find out more information about you and your products, what's the best place for them to go? Uh, definitely our website. It's just musiccityacoustics.com. Uh, all of the products are up there, obviously, but we've also got a ton of really cool resources just on acoustics and how to treat your home studio, what what acoustic treatment products to put in there and kind of the stages to treat it, uh, like we were talking about today. And then we got 
it, we have a bunch of different videos in the works as well. And those will all be up there. Um, everything from like how to take measurements of your room to speaker placement and how to really figure out where the best listening position and speaker placement should go. We're going to get to like sub integration and whether or not you should use a sub. And if so, like where that should go and how to do that well and, and a whole bunch of other ideas. So hopefully that should be out soon as well. That's amazing. I'll definitely have show notes that'll have all the links to everything cool. in there. Awesome. Graham, thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, of course. This is awesome. Thanks for having me. So that was my interview with Graham Wax, and that was an amazing conversation. I love how much ground we cover there as far as treating your rooms and what things you need to pay attention to. Because as we cover there, there's there are definitely things that are much more significant for making your room sound good than others. And I think that Graham gave a really good perspective on what's needed for a home studio versus what's needed for a much bigger facility. And based on the room that you're working out of, you're going to have to treat it differently. And I thought it was very interesting to get into the topic of diffusion. And I thought it was really interesting that Graham was saying that in home studios, it's not really a thing that people should be using. It can actually cause more problems than good. And it's interesting because that's such a topic that so many people discuss all the time when it comes to acoustic treatment. And we're often led to believe by manufacturers that we need to have all of these different tools, base absorbers, diffusion, absorption, all this kind of stuff. We're led to believe that we need this stuff. But I love how Graham just simplified it and made it easy to identify whether you actually need this stuff or not. And for the majority of people listening to this podcast, I don't think you're going to need the diffusers based on his answer here. So I just thought it was a really great episode, tons of great information. So definitely make sure to go back to this one and start listening to it and make the adjustments that he suggested as far as some of the free things you can do. And then if you are feeling up to actually putting some treatment in your room, he gave us a lot of great tips there on how to do it yourself or what kind of products you should be looking out for. So definitely bookmark this episode because I'm sure you will want to go back to it. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode and found it just as informative as I did. And if you did enjoy it, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you don't miss out on more podcasts like this. And every Wednesday we have new episodes go live. And by being subscribed to the podcast, you'll be the first to be notified as episodes go live. So definitely make sure to do that. And check out MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with their home studios. And I help them create pro setting recordings from their home studios with ease. And throughout the website, we've got lots of great resources designed to help make the process of music production very easy to understand. We cover everything from recording, editing, and mixing on the website. And one resource that you're definitely going to want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. This is a book that I put out a few years ago that became an Amazon number one bestseller. And inside of that book, I really break down the process of step-by-step mixing so that you know exactly what to do. You know what to listen out for, what tools to be using, when to be boosting and cutting, what frequencies to listen out for, and so much more so that you can actually create mixes from beginning to end and knowing when your mixes are done, which is also very important as well. So definitely check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that is available at MasterYourMix.com. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and that's it for this one. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.